0: Well, beloved listeners, we uh, talk about the patriarchy as if it was uh, rock-solid and immovable, like Everest, as if power has always been concentrated in the hands of men since, well, the dawn of time. But is that actually true? Did the ancients really believe that men should have all the power? Now, these questions are asked and answered by my next guest, an award-winning author and science journalist, Angela Saini. And her book is called The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. And she joins me on the little wireless program, which I have to say, Angela, in the decades I've been doing it, has always been overwhelmingly in the hands of powerful women. So, <laughs> that's <good to> hear. <laughs> so let's just start by uh, looking at the word patriarchy itself. How do you interpret it?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right that when we talk about or when we use the word patriarchy, we use it in a very abstract way as a kind of, you know, huge monolithic thing that has overarching control over all our lives. And what I wanted to do with this book was just ask, well, how true is that? And what, how does it really look? How does patriarchy really look? And when you drill down, what you see is that Actually, all over the world, male domination takes very different forms. It's certainly not consistent. And there are many parts of the world in which what we think of as, you know, the rule of the father, which is if you translate the word patriarchy, that's what it that's what it means, is not the case at all. There are matrilineal, matrilocal societies in which women have a lot of authority in their families all over the world, um, but we just don't imagine it that way. So I just wanted to demystify this huge, big monolithic idea.
0: And you say that uh, we're still seeing patriarchy uh, being remade right now, right across the world, in places, well, like Afghanistan, clearly, Iran, even the US.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, this is a system of power in which it advantages some people to be able to push this idea that traditional gender roles are how we should live, that a woman's place is in the home, that... You know, men should have more authority. And that's why through lots of different means, whether it's social or political or religious, you see people trying to reassert these ideas, these fundamental patriarchal ideas, because they want to either maintain the status quo or strengthen this idea that men should have more power than they always have had. I've lived in the US now for coming up to two years, and it's quite Shocking, you know, the way that there's been this rollback on abortion rights. There are clampdowns now on kind of gender freedoms. There's still a very strong sense in parts of the US that there should be traditional gender roles kind of backed up by a conservative religious right. So this is not a battle that's ever completely won.
0: Now, let's start with your investigation with the Bonobos. What a starting point. (laughs)
1: Well, I think a lot of people imagine that male domination is somehow hardwired into our species, that men have more power because they're bigger. Um, and that, you know, it's always been this way. But actually, if you look at our two closest genetic relatives in the primate world, they are chimpanzees, which are male-dominated, there's no doubt, and bonobos, which are female-dominated, matriarchal. And in both species, the male is slightly larger than the female. And I think what that goes to show is that size alone cannot account for why certain groups have power. For bonobos, what's interesting with them is that the reason that females in that group dominate, older females particularly, is because females form very strong relationships with other females who aren't necessarily kin. So these very strong bonds between the females, these networks, make it impossible for male bonobos to move up the hierarchy.
0: Now, as you've said, there's plenty of examples of uh, matrilineal societies across the, the world, in Asia, parts of North and South America, and a wide stretch of Africa. Take us on a tour.
1: Well, matrilineal means that property and name is passed from mother to daughter rather than from father to son, which is what you see in patriarchal societies, of course. And these matrilineal societies are far more widespread than people imagine. I only have one illustration in my book. It is a map of existing modern-day matrilineal societies. And as you say, they are all over the Americas, Africa, and Asia. I picked out a couple when I was writing my book, particularly in India, because that's where my family heritage is. I, uh, my parents were born in India. I've lived there and worked there. And I think through the example of those societies, one is in Kerala, the Nairs in Kerala, and another is in northeast India in Meghalaya. Uh, and this is a Khasi community. You can really see how much variation there is between matrilineal societies. Every single one is different. They have different marriage customs, different ways of worshiping. Some have goddesses, some have very relaxed rules around, you know sexual behavior, for instance. So it's just, A window into a different world that often we treat as marginal, but I think we should really be looking at more closely.
0: But you also make the point that these metrilineal societies are under pressure to conform to uh, the patriarchy.
1: Well, this has happened over a long period of time and largely because patriarchal systems have become so common in other parts of the world. They've become in big, large, dominant societies they have been spread through empires and colonialism, not just European colonialists, but well before that, other empires predating Europe. Because this is what people with power do. They spread their own systems of oppression around the world. And that is still ongoing. What I think is interesting is, for example, in the case of Kerala, this is a state in which for you know, something like 200 years, British colonialists and Christian missionaries tried very hard to undermine systems of matrilineal power and women's authority in Naira society. And they succeeded to a large degree in doing that. But what has happened in the 21st century is that Kerala has started to rediscover some of these matrilineal tradition, so much so that just recently uh, some schools in Kerala have introduced gender-neutral uniforms for boys and girls, and that has been widely celebrated and accepted and framed as part of its matrilineal traditions.
0: Now, when Europeans came to uh, the Americas, egalitarian democracies had already existed over the continent, right under the noses. Tell us more about that.
1: This is a history that I think can sometimes be quite opaque to people outside the Americas, but the indigenous history of the US is a fascinating one and one that has also informed the development of American democracy itself. In fact, this is written into the, the way that America, the United States imagines itself now, is that they have acknowledged that its own systems of democracy were inspired by Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, egalitarian systems of government, which pre-existed the founding of the United States. Uh, Haudenosaunee societies, so these are nations that exist in New York State and beyond, have had matrilineal traditions for hundreds of years in which women have traditionally had a very large part to play in agriculture, in which mothers are the heart of the family you know, the whole of creation is thought to have begun with a woman. So a very different worldview and one that was very difficult for settler colonialists in the 18th and 19th centuries to get their heads around because here they were imagining themselves to be creating a state that was the most modern and equal in the world. And yet, by the middle of the 19th century, when white American women were asking for more rights and freedoms, they realised that Haudenosaunee women already had what they were asking for and more.
0: My guest speaking to us from New York is uh, Angela Saini, and we're talking about the patriarchs, how men came to rule. Now, Angela, you visited the archaeological sites of the, some of the oldest known societies. What did they reveal about social relationships, well, in the Neolithic era, for example?
1: One of the first places I visited when I was writing my book was um, Çatalhöyük, which is in southern Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. This is a beautiful site. It's more than 9,000 years old. And at at its height, thousands of people would have lived there. So just to put into context how important this is, this is thousands of years earlier than the first pyramids in Egypt, thousands of years older than Stonehenge in England, pre-writing one of the earliest complex settlements that we have, and incredibly sophisticated. You know, um, there are these beautiful murals, depictions of hunting scenes on the walls,
0: it Quite breaks my heart social. that I was never <laughs> able to visit it because I've always shared your fascination with it.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredible, and it was it became famous, world famous uh, in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies when it was first excavated. Um, and what's particularly I think, crucial about it is that it really gives us an insight into how life might have been in the Neolithic, in prehistory. And we often imagine, you know, when we picture the Neolithic, I think sometimes we imagine the Flintstones in our imagination that this was, um, there was a kind of, you know, division of labor between men and women in which men went out to hunt and women were at home kind of looking after children. And that was not the case at Chattelhuyuk at all.
0: I'm sad to hear you demean the (laughs) Flintstones. I always regarded that as a documentary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, what we have in Chattelhuyuk is uh, with every single measure we have of gender inequality shows us that men and women lived pretty much the same lives. They ate the same things. They spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. They did the same kind of work, which is something you can measure through wear and tear on the bones and where that work happens, um, the way they were buried. And we have loads of female figurines from that period and that place and from the broader region uh, from that time period. So women weren't invisible, in fact, very far from it. So we can't say, based on the evidence that we have now, that 9,000 years ago, life was particularly gendered, because we genuinely do not have the data to support that.
0: I remember doing a program on this particular site years ago, and there was an argument that it saw the dawn of agriculture, that you had to have agriculture to feed the workforce that was involved in the construction. And of course, the dawn of agriculture is a very important part of the story.
1: Well, possibly. Um, yes. And you do see aspects of agriculture or at least plant and animal domestication at Chattel Huyuk, but you also see hunting and gathering. So it was likely to have been a mixed kind of economy, if you want to call it that. You know, people were living in lots of different ways. And often, you know, we think of agriculture as a turning point in women's rights because it is thought that that's when women had to go into the home and men took over because This involved a lot of uh, heavy manual labour and upper body strength. But actually, you have agriculture for a very long time, for thousands of years, before you get any signs of gender depression in the historical record. And certainly women were very much involved in the development of agriculture. We have lots of documentary evidence of, you know, women tending to animals and even working heavy plough machinery um, all across the world. And, and you know, even to this day, subsistence farming is very much um, shared by families. This isn't something that just men do. Women all over the world are also heavily involved in subsistence agriculture. Um, so I wanted to debunk that very much when I was writing this book. Um, there isn't one cause for the erosion of women's rights and certainly agriculture is not one of those causes.
0: So Frederick Engels got that wrong. Now, another <laughs> another common assumption is that being that women's oppression started in the home. But you dispute this, or at least you say there's not much evidence for it.
1: We don't have much evidence for it. And if it did start in the home, then you would think of it as being universal. You know, if the, if the family is designed this way, then from the beginning, then you would see it everywhere and you don't when you really see the first shoots of gender depression is with the rise of the earliest states. And actually this makes perfect sense because in ancient Mesopotamia, with the development of these big first states by the powerful elites, their big preoccupation was population. They were so concerned about maintaining population, keeping people there in a system in which people could leave if they wanted to. You know, it's not now like we have states everywhere. Um, these were new inventions, if you like. Um, and this is when you start to get this interest in what happens in the family. So those in charge then start to take an acute fascination with reproduction, what happens in the family, how are families organized, are these families loyal to us? And you start to see over thousands of years this growing pressure on women to stop working outside the home and start having many more children, for those children to be available to the state to fight if necessary. And we can see today in modern day states how that's still so important. Anywhere in the world where birth rates start to fall, governments start to get nervous. We see that everywhere. And that's because that fundamental need to keep your population high, I think, is still a kind of linchpin for modern day states.
0: Angela, what about the role of religion? It it too is often named as being the root of patriarchal ideas, and they certainly continue to flourish in the odd faith.
1: I wouldn't say that religion itself is the root of these ideas, but it was and has always been a kind of key means of propagating systems of power and that's that's very much the case with patriarchy so today we associate modern day monotheistic religions with very rigid and sometimes deeply misogynistic patriarchal ideas but it wasn't that way from the beginning so for example You can imagine in the early days of Christianity, in antiquity, this was just one kind of religious cult among many. And it offered equality, this version of equality that was quite revolutionary for its time. It was it was telling people in very stratified, hierarchical, slave-owning societies that everybody was equal. Um, and that's why people flocked to it, especially people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, from poorer backgrounds, and women. But what you see over time is that the institutions of religion, the establishment of religion, gets co-opted by those in power, and its goals become the same as the goals of the state. So why is it today, for instance, that the Vatican in Rome is so concerned with sex and reproduction and abortion? It's because, again, that was part of the aims of the earlier state to make sure that people were having enough children and were loyal to the state.
0: (sighs) I've had a lifelong uh, interest in ancient Egypt and have made many a visit and uh, I was fascinated by the the power of the female goddess in Egyptian theology and there's even an argument that Isis with her infant Horus morphed into uh, the cult of the Virgin Mary in Rome. So very often ancient faiths were sort of equal opportunity employers when it came to the gods and goddesses.
1: We forget this, you know. These days, we associate religion with something regressive, sometimes, or you know, antithetical to the cause of equality. But in antiquity, it really didn't feel like that. Um, in ancient Rome and ancient Athens, uh, religious cults were often an escape route for women. They offered systems of power and female priesthood that weren't available in other parts of life. Um, So I do think we need to have this more nuanced idea about what religion is and what it meant to people in the past because that's not necessarily what it means to people now.
0: There was a time when a truly gender-equal society was almost achieved, and oddly enough, and this will perhaps surprise our listeners, a case in point was the early Soviet Union. Tell us about that.
1: You know, when I was writing my previous two books, I was traveling quite a bit in Eastern Europe. So I often get invited to you know, Poland and uh, Hungary to speak. And one thing that struck me was that the feminist history of that region, Eastern and Central Europe, is very different from the feminist history of Western Europe and the United States and Australia, so most of the rest of the world. And that is because the Soviet Union after the Russian Revolution was really committed to this idea of gender equality. In fact, Soviet Russia became the first state in the world, first country in the world to legalise abortion. That was in 1920. And it did that out of this commitment to women's liberation um, to make this a much safer procedure for women. And we forget that. We forget just how dramatically... In the Soviet Union, gender norms were changed within a generation. And that's not in any way to whitewash the atrocities that happened afterwards, the authoritarian regime under Stalin and all the damage that, that was done. And, you know, it's perfectly understandable that people turn their backs on the regime by the end. But there was woven into those early efforts, at least, this idea that class inequality and gender inequality should go hand in hand um, and that's why women were sent to technical colleges uh, you know employment was opened up to everybody We, were, everybody was expected to work and that really did change the way that people thought about women and women at work.
0: As a teenage communist I remember hearing a story about one of the first party congresses when a woman stood up and said we've overthrown the bourgeois it is time <laughs> to overthrow their morality and we should treat sex like any other appetite, and if we're thirsty, we should drink. To which Lenin moralistically replied, ah, oh, yes, but not from a dirty glass. So whatever, <laughs> so whatever opportunities initially opened, they didn't survive that long in the Soviet.
1: No, and there were always tensions because these were countries that were Ah, uh, traditionally patriarchal to begin with. I mean, Russia in the nineteenth century. Um, Sheila Rowbottom, the historian, has written that in peasant uh, Russian societies, husbands were sometimes given whips in order to control their wives. So these are deep-rooted traditions and customs that then were trying to be radically overturned within a few generations. And this is, you know, that tension is part of the reason that even to the end um the communist party had very few women in its leadership even into the 1980s and stalin overturned that abortion ruling that the doctrine around uh, abortion because birth rates were getting too low so there was there was always a precarity around women's rights because of that kind of cultural tension around a woman's place
0: now as we've been discussing we're still seeing the struggle against patriarchy playing out across the world, why do you think patriarchy manages to survive against so much and indeed growing resistance?
1: Well, I think we could say that about any... System of oppression, we have seen increasing income inequality in many countries around the world. You know, uh, despite our best efforts to try and make societies fairer, we are seeing the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer, this huge gulf emerging. And I think that's because the levers of power and oppression are still being exercised all the time. And that kind of fundamental social conflict that is kind of the constant feature of what it means to be human. People always trying to build society the way that they want. That struggle just doesn't always go in our favor. We can't take for granted that societies will necessarily become fairer, more progressive or more liberal in the future. We have to make the case for it. We have to fight for it. Um, And we always have to resist the efforts of those who have the most power to keep it.
0: Finally, what would you like people to do with the knowledge you've uh, given them in the book?
1: What I would love is for people to just look at the past a little bit differently and also remember that the way things are now is not the way that things have to be. We, are, It is well within our control to design society completely differently. In fact, many humans have right throughout history. Um, And that is the lesson of history, that we can live any way that we choose. So do not feel resigned to the way that things are now.
0: My guest has been uh, Angela Saini, and that's uh, spelt S-A-I-N-I a British science journalist and broadcaster and author, now resident in the US, and we've been talking about her new book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule, published by HarperCollins, and it's very bad news for the patriarchs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. ABCRN helps you understand the world.